The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Jaws of Justice Radio investigates how we can achieve justice from a system of laws deeply rooted in economic, social, and political inequality. We hope you will listen. This week, in part two of his Justice series, host David Bell speaks with Erica Andrade, president and CEO of El Centro Incorporated. They will explore what justice means to her and to the community she serves. For 44 years, El Centro has been committed to serving our Latino community. At El Centro, the belief is that all individuals, regardless of language, place of birth, or documentation status, deserve to be fully accepted and integrated into the communities in which they live, work, and pursue their dreams. There has been and is migration and discrimination. There is also a rich history of world-changing accomplishment in the Hispanic heritage. Hispanic heritage is a great source of pride, but when faced with hatred, exclusion, and other forms of bigotry, that pride can be hard to manifest in a meaningful way. El Centro provides a positive and understanding hand. Actions of El Centro Incorporated empower us all. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. In our last show, we welcomed Dion Sankar, Chief Deputy Prosecutor in Jackson County, to discuss his understanding of justice and how he uses that understanding to make decisions that impact the community. As we learned, and even if we all could agree on what justice is, there would still remain a tension between the concept of justice and how that concept plays out on the street and in court on a day-to-day basis. Of course, we know that there does not exist one agreed-upon definition of justice. At the same time, if we're going to call ourselves a society, then surely there must be a core definition of justice with enough buy-in by enough people. Over the next few shows, we will talk with people from various communities within our greater community to see where this core may be. To begin our discussion, we welcome Erica Andrade to our show. Erica is the president and CEO of El Centro, an organization dedicated to building an educated, healthy, financially empowered, and engaged Latino community. Erica, welcome. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. Um, If you could, to begin our show, could you talk a little bit about how your family established a connection with Kansas City? Sure. Um, I was born in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, um, which is, if some people know Texas, it's way, way in the south. It's the last little dot in in the boot heel. And um, that's where I was born and raised until I was 15 years old. My mom is an immigrant from Mexico. She came from uh, the state of Guanajuato. And she arrived in Texas. uh, She was in her young 20s, I think, early 20s, um, where she finally met my father and and started her family. Uh, As a child, we traveled to Mexico every summer. That's where we spent our summer. So I have a really close connection not just with my culture, but my heritage, but where my family comes from. My father was an only child, so he really didn't have a connection outside of himself. He was born in Texas as well, but his mother was also immigrant from Mexico. And the culture in Texas where I grew up in South Texas was very different from what most people think of what Texas is in the sense that everybody is just like me. Everybody, you ask them who they are or what they are, we are Mexican. Because everybody's Mexican. Um, I would say the primary language is Spanglish. Uh, it's a code switching between English and Spanish that just flows so naturally you don't even know that you're doing it until somebody points it out. That's not from the valley. That's how we call it. Um, lived there till I was 15 years old. My mom uh, remarried with a gentleman, an older gentleman from Kansas City. He was planning to retire down in Texas like a lot of people come down and become winter Texans. He was going to try it out full time. Unfortunately, that did not work out. It was a little too hot for him. Yeah. And after, I believe, one year, he said, I'm going back. So you guys can come with me or not. And so we did. I was still 15. So obviously, I was still in high school, came with my mom, settled in Kansas City, Kansas, which was his hometown. He was, uh, I think, a third generation um, uh, Mexican-American from Kansas City. And so we settled there, graduated from Harmon High School, 
um, went to KU, and I I knew pretty quickly, probably a year in, that I was never going to leave this place. I loved it. I loved that diversity. I loved being exposed to all kinds of different people where I was not used to that. That's That had never been my experience up until that point. Um, everybody, like I said, everybody was just like me. And so even my sense of identity, being a Mexican, Chicana, Latina woman, I didn't have to think about that in Texas because it's just what we were. But here, it was very intentional that I had to think about it every day because it was pointed out to me every day. And I was treated as such every day. And so that's where I kind of developed that sense of wanting to work for my community and with my community here in Kansas City. And if you, if you don't mind sharing with us how that was pointed out to you. First day of school, uh, junior in high school, Harmon High School, I'm sitting in the lunchroom. And I mean, as we can all remember, when we're 15 years old, that's like, you, that's the last place you want to be somewhere brand new where you don't know anybody sure. and nobody knows you. And so I'm sitting there by myself and somebody approached me. And the first question that I was asked by any other student um, in my high school career here in Kent City was, are you mixed? And I didn't know what that meant. I never heard that expression. I didn't have any concept of to what they were talking about. I didn't want to look like I didn't know what I was talking about, what they were talking about. So I just answered like, no, <laughs> even though I didn't know what that meant. Um, you know, listeners can't see, but I have very, very curly hair. So I think that the question came from that, um, that aspect of it. And so then I quickly learned that who you were racially was very important in Kansas City because that assigned you to a group. It would assign you to who you would be identified with. If you were Mexican or Latino uh, student, then primarily you were going to hang out with the Latino students in school. But then let's not forget that there's two different types of Latinos. There was the Mexican kids that were from Mexico that still primarily spoke Spanish. And then there was the Latino kids or Hispanic kids, as they call themselves, at that time that were, you know, first, second, third generation Kansas Cityans. So that would, became very quickly evident to me in the way we were treated by teachers, the way we were treated by the resource officers, which is what they called the police officers in those schools, became very evident that if you were black or brown, you were going to be treated a different way than the white students were. Do you remember a time, because at 15, you have at least some of your identity formed, mm -hmm. certainly growing up, where you realized, and I, certainly when the, the question about are you mixed started that, where you realized, wait a minute, I'm being viewed at by another culture, or, or I don't want another, I'm being by this white resource officer, potentially white, mm -hmm. as someone different, mm -hmm. and in that difference, someone, at least as they view it, not as good as them. Definitely. I've always, since I was young, I, I think when I was younger, they used to call it a stubborn. I was very stubborn. I was a very stubborn child. I think that it was that I always had a really strong sense of fairness and justice and something's not right. Something's not fair. And I can't hide it from my face. I can fight it, fight, hide it from the way I respond to things. And so when that became evident to me, I very quickly realized that I wasn't going to be quiet about how it was not fair and it wasn't right. Being a new kid in school, somehow I was able to become fairly popular fairly quickly with all the different groups. Mm. Um, and so I made it a point to talk about the differences that I saw to other groups. I was in the drama club, for example, and primarily those were white kids. And so I would talk to them about my experience when I hung out with my after school friends, which were my Latino friends, mm. and the differences that we felt and we saw. And so I made sure that I was always having those conversations so that they too would see, oh, yeah, you're right. That's not right. That's messed up. Why is that happening? So, so it, it, it almost sounds like it took someone coming from outside mm -hmm. the community to help individuals within the community identify or perhaps give words to something they may have felt but not yet put to words. Correct. Because, you know, when you're young, especially teenagers, we are all very self-centered. We're all thinking about our own experience and how we view the role and the, how the world treats us individually, but not necessarily looking at the bigger picture about what's going on around us. And also understanding, like, what power we have to talk about those issues when we do see them and not just being like, well, it's not really about me, so I'm just going to let it go. Really quickly before we go on, just so to make sure I understand, and for, also for our listeners, too, I, if you don't mind helping me with some of the terms that we've talked about before and you brought up here, the term Latino, Hispanic, and Chicano. And then, if you don't mind, talking about how how those terms are used here, at least in Kansas City, potentially, and potentially the United States, mm -hmm. to apply to various groups of people aren't, in fact, used by those very people to describe themselves. Correct. So I know that one of the terms that one of the, I guess, older terms or more established terms here in here as in here in the United States is Hispanic because that's what's on the census. That's when it's in mostly all of the 
forms that we fill out, doctor's office, you know, federal forms, because it is a federal term that was imposed on a group of people, Hispanic meaning of Spain, like having that descendants, having the Spanish language. As we know, not all Latinos, people from Latin America, even speak Spanish because you have countries like Brazil and Belize and others that don't speak Spanish. So terming them Hispanic doesn't even include everybody that's from Latin America. So that's why Latino is a term that is most more widely, especially from people from Latin America, that is more understood and kind of incorporated. Chicano is a, another political term, but it's more of that rebel term. So it's you try to label me Hispanic. I will take ownership of who I am, and I am Chicano, which is a person of Mexican-American descent born in the United States. So a pe person of Mexican descent born in the U.S., and not in all states, because different states, it's regional too, that term. But it's very much so a term of pride. So I'm very comfortable calling myself a Chicana because, yes, my parents are from Mexico. I'm first generation, but I was born in Texas. So technically, I was born in the United States, even though Randy, you might want to say who crossed who. But still, <laughs> but still, that that's a term that I'm very comfortable using. And there's other terms that have now started to spring up. A lot of people say Latinx with an X. That's a very academic term. That was a term created, again, by academics to try to label, again, a group of people. Again, it's a term that's been imposed on a group of people. You ask any Latino from Mexico or Central South America, and you say Latinx, a lot of them will have no idea what you're referring to. That's not a term that is recognizable or widely used there. I realize that it's supposed to be a gender neutral term, and I can appreciate the inclusiveness of that. But at the same time, I also acknowledge that that's an academic term created by academics, again, imposed on a group of people that they didn't get to select themselves. So with someone from Mexico, born in Mexico, I'll just say born in Mexico, born in whatever other countries in Latin America, what terms do they use to describe themselves? Which is really interesting because most of them will think of it if you ask them that, 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 like if you ask for race, it gets, it becomes very confusing because Latinos come in every single kind of race. And first of all, race is just a made up construct. Right. But Latinos come in every single kind of race. Uh, most Latinos are very indigenous, but you can't say that in the United States because of our own kind of concept of what being truly indigenous means. So most of the time they're like, I don't know, I'm from, they'll, they'll still uh, equate it to nationality. So I'm from Mexico. I'm from Peru. I'm Peruvian. I'm from, that's a little bit more comfortable for them because that's what they are. They're from that country. It's a nationality. Then you start trying to talk about ethnicity like, oh, no, but your ethnicity is Latino. They're, that again, those these are all concepts that are American concepts. These are not concepts that are used anywhere else in other countries other than here. It's amazing that that you that the story that you related that you coming up to Kansas City at age fifteen that you're essentially told you need to pick you need to pick the group that's been predefined really by kind of an outside force, if you will, and you've got to you've got to pick one. Yes. To, to, to fit in, I guess, or to be, you need to be part of something. And it's not even for me to fit in. I was fitting in with every group of people. Mm -hmm. It's to make people comfortable of where to place you. I need to be comfortable with understanding who are you, where do I put you in my, in my mind of needing to sort individuals. And that's interesting. What, where do you think that comes from or, or help me? And I, I love that concept and I agree with what you're saying that it, it's for someone else's comfort level to be able to place you in a cubby hole, mm -hmm. certainly not for your own comfort level what to the extent you know and I certainly have an idea of it I'd love to hear why why do you think that arises it's one of those interesting things where I don't know where it's like started um obviously I think if we really get down to the nitty-gritty it's about uh class and power a power dynamic like if you're here then at least I'm taught I'm a higher level than you depending on where you're at at then right. and that and that kind of ranking I don't know if that's the comfort level or just also Maybe to not offend, always being so afraid that we're going to offend somebody if I think you look a certain way, but maybe you're not really identifying that way. So then we always have this innate fear that we're going to offend somebody if we just ask mm -hmm. them questions or get to know them as a human being first. Um, so I don't know. It could be either way. Well, somewhere in between. Well, it's probably I agree. It's usually it's somewhere in between. But I was thinking as you were as you were talking, I was like, well, you know what? It, maybe it's certainly the country uh, with slavery founded mm -hmm. with slavery as part of it. Right. Race was needed to. And that to, to determine who's in one group or the other, and that's going to determine what rights one group's going to have versus the other. Mm -hmm. And so with that that structure kind of within the framework, if you will, it is in the framework, it's in the Constitution, right. then continues on over and over and again, mm -hmm. 
and, and maybe the number of racial groups have expanded at least. Right. But the same kind of concept still pervades. And then that whole thing is based on a power dynamic. Who has more power over who else? And the people that have more power obviously don't want to lose that power. People that have less power try to figure out how do I gain more power? Right. Um, but all of it through ideas that have been implanted through us because of a society that's based on institutional racism, right. structural racism. So obviously we want to be able to somehow find our own place in that ranking and obviously maybe not even intentionally but unintentionally think of how do I go up in that ranking. Yes. Well, we, we had someone on our show a number of uh, shows ago on redlining. Yes. And what he talked about, which was fascinating, was how different groups somehow, well, not somehow, but over time became white. They were led into the white group. Mm -hmm. uh, Italians, Jews, uh, exactly. two of the groups, and they became white, and okay. that allowed them to enjoy the benefits of that. Exactly. Tell me, tell me a little bit about the organizations you're president and CEO of El Centro. Sure. Um, El Centro, we are just finishing up celebrating our 46th year. So we've been around for a while here in Kansas City. Um, we have three locations currently, uh, one in Kansas City, Kansas, one in Olathe, Kansas, and then we have an academy for children in Kansas City, Kansas as well, which is a dual language preschool. El Centro was created um, as it will be, you know, kind of when we describe of our history, our origin, it was created to fight racism mm -hmm. in, in the state of, of Kansas at the time, especially the metro area. We had gotten a big influx of, of Latino immigrants coming, especially from primarily from Mexico, to work on the Pacific Railroad. They were recruited to work on the railroad. They needed that, that work body to do the work. They were coming in here once, you know, the, their work was in there. You know, they decided, some decided to stay. But there was not enough resources or services that were able to help them acclimate to the new, to their new home. There wasn't any resources in Spanish. There wasn't any individuals that or um, organizations that existed that could provide them assistance with kind of incorporating into their new home. And so at the time, uh, Father Ramon Gaitan, a Catholic priest, had gone and established El Centro Topica uh, first. And then so they, at being here in, in Kansas City, he met with a group of leaders, Latino leaders, that were saying, we need the same thing here. We need an organization that's by Latinos for Latinos to serve our community that's not getting any kind of resources, has no representation in the government or anywhere else, and, and their voice matters. So El Centro was born. Um, and so that was, like I said, 46 years ago, our trajectory has changed. We started doing a lot of just migrant work, and then we moved into doing a lot of services for seniors. When Reagan had the amnesty passed, we did a lot of work with naturalization and developing kind of people with English skills to then get their citizenship, to then, you know, start owning property and houses. And we were doing a lot of that work. Currently, right now, all of the work that we do revolves around four core areas early education, which is our academy for children, which is a dual language preschool, community health programming. So we have health navigators and promotoras. Promotoras is a community health worker model um, that's very popular when you work with uh, communities, uh, immigrant communities of different kinds. And so they do health education, but then also health resources and health access. We have our economic empowerment department, which does everything from emergency assistance to helping individuals apply for their ITIN their individual tax assistance style, uh, taxpayer number to do their taxes, to homebuyer education, to financial literacy, job training uh, programs. And then we have our advocacy, which is really the thread that runs through all of the programming that we do, where we do everything from know your rights to voter engagement, to voter education, to different campaigns and issue campaigns that then if, that can we help will benefit individuals become civically engaged in their communities having their voices heard in their communities, and then also improving the things, the policies, the services, the access that they have in their communities to help them better integrate. When I described that before and then now again, and I, re I really appreciate that, I was thinking certainly about how I've heard certainly pushback about, uh, please you know, speak English, uh, don't speak Spanish. And, and that's a, almost a red herring because it sounds like your organization is created to fully integrate individuals into the society so they can fully participate and be fully part of the experience. Right. And, and yet the whole reason your organization exists is because there's a barrier mm -hmm. to that very thing. And not only that, we take it a step further. El Centro is very proud and unapologetic to call ourselves a Spanish-first organization. Mm -hmm. That means that everything that we do, every service, every education class, every communication that we do internal or external is done in Spanish first. 
and then it's translated into English. Um, because we know that our one of our biggest purpose, regardless of what programs we've offered through the years and how they've changed, it's always been very clear that we are here to prevent, to be that connection to the community that has that barrier of language that speaks Spanish and isn't able to fully integrate into the communities that they live and work and have built their lives in um, to those resources. So that's our purpose, our core purpose underneath everything else. When when I invited you on, I, I indicated to you I was going to ask you about the concept of justice. And I, I didn't give you much guidance because mm -hmm. I don't want to, it's not for me to tell you, I, I'm asking you, how do you define justice? I think for me, justice is making sure that individuals are all treated as human beings, mm -hmm. regardless of who they are, how they got here, what language they speak, how they look, how much money they have in the bank, how much education, but that they're treated with basic dignity and that everybody should have access to the same amount of opportunities and resources as everybody else. It seems like as part of that, there would need to be the ability to be heard. Yes. And how is that accomplished in your organization? Because it, because to a certain extent, it, it would be easy, and it's done all the time, from the majority to look and say, we don't, we don't understand what you're saying. I don't want to deal with it. You're not going to be heard. And so how do you overcome that, that barrier, which certainly shouldn't be your obligation to overcome, but it's the reality that we live in? And I think that one of the things um, social services organizations should always be very careful with is in what you call empowerment. Empowerment doesn't mean something, it's something that I can give you and now, yay, you're empowered. Right. <laughs> right? It's, it's, you know, we have to be really careful with the savior syndrome. Um, empowerment is about engaging with individuals in whatever level they're at to provide them in information and education because once you know something, nobody can take that from mm. you. And to tell them that your story and your voice, regardless of what language you're speaking it in, matters. And it matters to the community that you're a part of and to the people that are supposed to represent you. We see ourselves as our responsibility as amplifying those voices and those stories at those tables mm -hmm. that we have the privilege of being because we have a 46-year history. We're respected in the community. We're respected by foundations and also by local entities that we work with. But it's our responsibility to make sure that those stories and those voices are being heard. Not what we want, not my ego right. or what we think is right or wrong, but what our community is telling us is important to them. And it sounds like, and we, and we talked like we talked with Dion Sankar last time, where balancing of competing interests, and we'll talk about specifics in the next half hour. But, but in order to be part of that balancing, you need to have your interests heard. Otherwise, you're not going to be part of whatever weighing goes on by whoever's doing it. Correct. And to be able to do that, we have to be engaged. We have to be involved. We have to understand what's going on, and then we have to relay that same information to our community in a in a language that they can understand and that's culturally also appropriate and not just linguistically appropriate, but culturally appropriate because some of the concepts of that we know of our society are not concepts that are widely known in other places of the world. And so we also have to kind of balance that ability to not just say that we everything that you're that's going on, we're going to translate into Spanish and great, it's going to be great. They're going to know everything. No, because we know that there needs to be a lot of education that comes around. Like, why does that work that that way? Why is there a commissioner? What is the job of a commissioner? Why is there a school board? What is the job of the school board? So there's a lot of that kind of level setting that needs to happen before we even start engaging on those bigger conversations. But it's about going with them in every single one of those levels so that they're fully integrated into the processes that literally affect their everyday life. Everything that you do in your everyday life has a policy or a department or an entity that's responsible for it when you don't even know how none of it works and how your little your your piece fits into that puzzle it's hard to be fully integrated it's hard for us english speakers to be fully yeah. integrated into the whole process but at the same time it's important to do it because that's how you build more equity in the things that you're providing the services the resources the programs that you develop if you don't have that perspective from that community that a lot of times is silenced or not or just ignored because it's too hard it's too hard we got to get now we got to get an interpreter <laughs> now we got to start translating things it's going to get more expensive which it does so it's best to just not ignore it they're not complaining anyways oh, you know oh. so let's just ignore it and keep on going but that's not equity you know it's interesting you mentioned that when i uh have clients where Spanish is the first language. The reason I have an interpreter, and sometimes there's a pushback a little bit from a client, maybe wanting to satisfy me, I don't know. But my question to them is, in what language do you dream? Is the question I ask, and it's Spanish. And and so I'm saying, then I want to hear what's coming from inside in the language, that first language. 
Because I think in order to get that story, you have to hear it in that first language. Certainly you might get an idea of it in another language, but that that original language, I think, mm-hmm. is the is the best the best vehicle for communicating what's inside that person. I agree. I have never heard anybody say it that, that way so perfectly, actually. I'm going to use that. I want to steal that. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, because it's so true, because sometimes I feel like I'll lose my spot, and it's because I'm thinking about it, and I can say the concept or the feeling in Spanish, but mm-hmm. for some reason there's not a word that exists in English that kind of explains it. And also the English language uses a lot of, um, what's that? what are those things, like metaphors? Yeah. That do not translate. <laughs> Concepts that just don't translate. So you have to explain it a different way. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. It, it's it's just about that comfort. It's like, how can you fully explain or talk about how you're feeling or what your needs are if you're not even able to fully express them in a language that's unfamiliar to you? This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Our guest today is Erica Andrande. She is the CEO and president of El Centro. Did you know your business or organization could be sponsoring this episode of Jaws of Justice Radio? Learn more at kkfi.org marketing. Eco Radio KC, a locally produced exploration of positive solutions to the ecological challenges we face as we work to create a healthier future for our community and the planet. Hear from regional and national guests, find out about upcoming events, and learn how to keep yourself and your family well. Tune in each week from 6 to 7 on Monday evenings or listen anytime at kkfi.org slash podcasts. Are you passionate about making a difference in your community? So are we. KKFI's Community Voices series is dedicated to featuring local individuals and organizations that are driving positive change. If you have a story to share or initiative that you want to showcase, we invite you to submit your information at kkfi.org slash community voices. Together, let's amplify your impact and inspire others to join the movement. Join us on Community Voices and to share the positive differences made in our communities. Here's the calendar for the week of November 6th. For information about Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense meetings this week, you can go to momsdemandaction.org. All are welcome, mothers and others. Please check the calendar at moresquare.org for events you can attend and be involved. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. The list is updated daily. Tuesday, November 7th is General Election Day. Please go vote. Tuesday, November 7th, 6 p.m., Saving Culture in Crisis Today with Richard Curran, founder of the Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative. He discusses the institution's vital efforts to preserve cultural heritage under threat in our country and around the world. This in-person event is at the Truman Forum Auditorium in the Plaza Branch of the KCMO Library and is also live-streamed on the library's YouTube channel. For more info and to RSVP for the live event, go to kclibrary.org. Thursday, November 9th, 7 to 9 p.m., Show Up for Survivors 2023 is at Liberty Hall, 644 Massachusetts, Lawrence, Kansas. Tickets available on Eventbrite are required. Proceeds go toward continuing education, advocacy, and therapy services for survivors of sexual abuse and trauma living in Douglas, Franklin, and Jefferson counties. Friday, November 10th, 6.30 p.m., a screening of Killers of the Flower Moon will be at the B&B Theater, 16301 Midland, Shawnee, Kansas. The event will be followed with a community conversation to discuss the movie's historical significance. Saturday, November 11th, noon to 2, Mothers of Incarcerated Sons and Daughters KC asks you to join them at Plexboard Westport Commons, Meeting Room A, 300 East 39th Street, Kansas City, Missouri, convenient parking and much more. Sessions offer information about state and federal criminal justice systems, support and advocacy, and much, much more. Items listed in this calendar can also be found on this episode's page at the KKFI website, kkfi.org, 
as well as on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. Please, take care of yourselves and others. Stay safe. Be kind to each other. Thanks for listening to Jaws of Justice. Let's return to the program, David Bell speaking with Erica Andrade. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Our guest today is Erica Andrade. She is the CEO and president of El Centro. In the first half hour, we learned more about Erica and her organization, El Centro, and some of the bigger picture concepts that she deals with on a day-to-day basis. In the second half hour, we'll speak to Erica about specific areas that her organization works in to help bring justice in the Latino community and the community as a whole. Erica, one of the things that you and I talked about when we met was the concept of justice and then the fulfillment of that. And one of those areas is healthcare. At first, I was like, wait a minute, what does healthcare have to do with justice? But of course, you certainly can't seek justice or enjoy the fruits of it if you're not healthy. And so it becomes almost two parts. One, in order to get it, I have to be healthy, but then that's part of justice in and of itself. If you could talk about some of the specific struggles in the Latino community that your organization deals with. Yeah, I think when we talk about justice, there's so many different concepts that we can talk about when we're talking about how health justice, economic justice, social justice. These are all justice issues under that big umbrella of just justice as a whole. For us, healthcare justice or health access justice is really important because we see how it affects our community on their day-to-day basis. So an individual, we understand because we all live in a society where health insurance is pretty important to get any kind of health care yes. nowadays. And get quality health care is even more complicated depending on the type of insurance you have. We also know that. For a lot of the community that we serve, some individuals, sure, are insurable. They're able to either get their private insurance through their job or they're able to get their Medicare because they're over 65 and they're retirees. Um, they might be able to qualify for CanCare, which is what we call in Medicaid in Kansas, um, if they're low income or uh, children, disabled, et cetera. But there's always going to be a portion of the population that is uninsurable. And what we mean by uninsurable is that because of status issue is one reason, or because some states haven't expanded Medicaid, you are going to be in this gap where regardless of how much you want to have insurance, you will never have insurance. Do, do, do you, just to be clear, do you have to have some legal status in the United States in order to buy insurance? If you had an infinite amount of money... Not necessarily. There are insurance companies out there that will sell insurance package for individuals that do not have a social security number. In America, a social security number is basically your your key to everything, any kind of uh, public benefit. So there are some. Is it accessible? No. It's super expensive. And at the same time, it's actually not very good. I see. (laughs) So it's still in the way you're still uninsurable at that point. And so for those individuals in our country, in our, in, our, in our communities that are uninsurable for whatever one of those issues, whether it's a status or whatever it's an income or whether it's because of the way the law is created at that time in your state, there's really not that many options as far as how you're going to get your health care. We have some, a really nice, strong, robust FQHC kind of um, what system. Is F- FQHC, F- which is a federally qualified health center. Okay. These are your community clinics. You go in, you register as a patient, they usually um, ask for proof of your income, and then based on your family size and your income, you'll fall somewhere on their sliding scale. So you'll pay based kind of on, on, on how much you make. However, these are for primary care. This is great for your annual checkups. This is good if you get a cold or something's going on and you get an illness. Anytime that something occurs where it's you need specialty care, you broke something, you broke a leg, you broke an arm, or you or you have a chronic illness of some kind um, that's going to take some long-term treatment, then is when things get complicated because health systems, that's where you get those services. And of course, if you do not have insurance, even with insurance, we all know how long it can take sure. to go to see a specialist. If you don't have insurance, some are just flat out denied. You will not be able to see that specialist without insurance. And if you are given the opportunity to see a specialist, it's going to be a lot of money that you have to pay upfront all at once before you're even allowed to see that specialist. Um, And so that's one of the big issues that we have with the clients that we serve in the sense that we always recommend that they sign up for one of those medical homes, the safety net clinics. But then if something happens like cancer, it's kind of where we become stuck. Like what, where do we refer them to so they can start that cancer treatment, which we know is going to be very expensive and it takes a long time and time is of an essence because the sooner you start treatment once diagnosed, the better your outcomes. The longer you take, 
the worse your outcomes. This is just facts that we already know as a society. And so those are the struggles that we work with in our community when it comes to those individuals that are uninsurable and they're needing access to something as important and critical as cancer care. My health insurance is through my the law firm or through my employer. And I'm going to just speculate that most individuals' health care is through their their employer. employer. If you're if you don't have status, meaning you don't have a social security number, and you're still working at an employer that's paying you under the table, I guess you're not going to be getting your health insurance through through that employer. No, they're not going to offer you health insurance. And you're lucky to work in a field where kind of medical insurance is almost like a given. You would yes. never work for a company that wouldn't offer you medical insurance. Neither would I. El Centro offers a wonderful medical insurance package. There's actually a lot of businesses out there that don't offer their employees medical insurance options at all. And we know that they're empl- employing undocumented folks because a lot of the stuff that gets done on our day-to-day basis around here wouldn't be happening without that workforce. Yes. So they're definitely working, and they're working for someone, but there's a lot of fields in the U.S. in general that don't offer health insurance to any of their employees. They either have to go into the marketplace to get it themselves, or they just don't have insurance. And so, so, so again, so uninsurable is, is essentially, if you don't have status, meaning you don't have a social security number, you're not a lawful permanent resident or have a work visa mm-hmm. or something that allows you to remain in the country and work in the country, and you don't have an infinite amount of money, you are in- uninsurable. Right. And if you're uninsurable, and God forbid you, someone in that situation, they go to a safety net clinic and they're like, oh, you've got a mass or you've got something, and it's everyone knows this is likely cancer. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? That's where the complication starts. And El Centro for decades now has been working in that kind of specialty care. It's what we called it care coordination field. So usually they would call somebody like El Centro, that, that safety in a clinic, say, we have this client. He's needing extra additional assistance that's beyond our scope of what we can do. And so we start trying to navigate them into who will accept them. We'll talk to different healthcare systems, uh, local, of course. We always try to go local, whatever's closest to them, to see if they'll let them come in as a self-pay patient. Can they qualify for any discounts? Can they qualify for any charity care? Most hospital systems have those kind of uh, policies in place and then try to get them in. Over the years, though, those policies have gotten so um, strict and have been reducing and reducing who they allow to actually even apply for them that it's gotten really hard to navigate those individuals without them getting to come up with a lot of -of out-of-pocket funds before they even get treatment. And when I say a lot. I'm talking a lot. I'm talking people that will get, oh, yeah, we'll see you. You have to pay $56,000 up front. Yeah. And we're talking about households where $56,000 is like two or three years of their salary, of their income. So do they have access? I guess they're getting a price. They're telling, oh, we'll see you. Do they really have access? Mm-hmm. No. And so um, so that's kind of the the what's kind of made us start looking at the bigger picture of what's happened to our systems, the way that our systems work and are created and are run, which are unjust to the community that we serve, and to ask ourselves, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do to try to bring uh, awareness to the problems that are happening with our healthcare systems, our local healthcare systems, and then to kind of push back on them to say, you know, that that health access should be for everyone that lives and works and has called your community home, and how do we change those policies? Now, I, I know in, in Wyandotte County, and by the way, I think you indicated to me that Wyandotte County is a third African-American, a third Latino, and a third white. Correct. Is that pretty much. Pre- pre- approximately. approximately. Mm-hmm. But in Wyandotte County, I believe we have like an NIH, it was a National Institute of Health. Cancer. Cancer Treatment Center, which is Designated like. Designated Cancer Cre- Treatment Center, yes. Right, which is where I think, you know, my family, I think when they've gotten some, mm-hmm. uh, have problems have gone to. Mm-hmm. Why not? What's the, what's the, I, I guess I don't understand. I call up and I say hey, I've got this mask or whatever, mm-hmm. I need to come in and see. So what happens to someone that we're talking about that's uninsurable? They just say no, or they say, or or how does that work? Right. Um, I'm, I'll be really honest. A few years ago, the answer was straight up no, where they would be told you need to go back to your country. That was the response they know. got on the phone. Um, we had a lot of conversations, uh, which is it's the KU Cancer Center, mm-hmm. where they have toned down that rhetoric, and we appreciate that we're moving very, very slowly in the right direction, but again, it's very, very slowly. Unfortunately, they have a charity care policy where if an individual does not have a social security number, which we talked about is your key to everything, they aren't even allowed to apply for charity care, meaning they can prove their income all they want. They can prove that they live here all they want. They can have all the all the proof that they need that anybody else would have, 
but because they don't have a social, they're not even applied. They're not even allowed to apply for that charity care. Charity care is where they would determine, oh, this person, you know, would qualify for insurance. But like, like I said, Kansas did not expand Medicaid, but they're in that gap. They would qualify for charity care through KU. So they would be able to come in, get their treatment, get their cancer care and be good. Unfortunately, individuals that don't have a social, um, primarily because they're undocumented, are not even allowed to do that policy to see if they qualify for that discount. So then the only way to get the treatment is the $56,000. Is to pay the self-pay price, which self-pay price uh, for KU is, like we have insurance, so our insurance automatically deducts a, a, a portion of whatever our care is for anything. Sure. But there's always that portion that the insurance pays, correct? Right. That insur- That portion that normally an insurance would pay, they have to pay 100% out of pocket. So you talked about this gap. So for Medicaid in Kansas, if you're undocumented, you don't have a social security number, can you can you, no, can you un- get Medicaid? No, no, no. Undocumented uh-huh. folks uh-huh. can apply for any public benefits. Medicaid is a public benefit. Right. Public benefits are just for U.S. citizens. Okay. So people, U.S. citizens, like me and you. Right. So if you were to you lose your job, something happens, you lose your job, your income goes underneath a certain amount of, of, of level. You could qualify for public assistance, which is can care, or here in Missouri, I think it's Monet, uh, your Medicaid. That's what it's there for. It's a safety net. So you do get insurance. That's insurance. Um, unfortunately, Kansas did not expand Medicare, uh, can care, sorry, which is their Medicaid, which means that there's a gap. So extremely poor folks will qualify for can care. That's insurance. Above a certain amount, you can apply for the marketplace, which a lot of people call Obamacare. Right. That insurance. But there's a gap. So if you make, you have to be extremely poor or not that poor, but if you're in that middle gap, you will never have insurance, even if you're a U.S. citizen. You will not have insurance. So, so when you talk about very poor, if you're very poor or you're in that gap and you're undocumented, you're you're out of luck. You're not yeah. getting insurance at all. No, you're never going to have insurance. Okay, okay. And that, those are the individuals that have to pay the out-of-pocket costs that the insurance company would otherwise be paying Correct. for the treatment. Correct. So- so this charitable portion of the cancer treatment is only to to help really, really poor people that have social security numbers, essentially. Correct. Correct. So they'll be able to apply for charity care. And it's not always 100 percent, but it basically says like, oh, well, then of that discounted amount, you only have to take 10 percent of that or 20 percent of that. It depends. Again, it's that sliding scale that everybody loves to use, depending on how poor you are and how many people live in your house. And we'll decide how much you can actually pay. Sometimes it's zero. Sometimes it ju- you're just at the level where you wouldn't have to pay for the care. Um, but unfortunately, undocumented folks are not even given the opportunity to do that. They can't even complete that application. And so that was what our campaign, Ni Uno Mas, which is not one more, um, is about. It's about A, first part is bringing the awareness so individuals know that these policies are in place. These policies that are in place in institutions that benefit from having their institutions in our communities that get tax breaks, that get um, the revenue and the notoriety of having a community that's very diverse helps them obviously become these designated centers. And yet they turn around and are not actually treating the communities where they're housed, where they're located. And, and the term used, say that again, if you don't mind in Spanish. Ni uno mas, not one more. And are we talking about like not one more death? Is yes, that... the idea is not one, it's ni uno mas, a cancer care, cancer care access for all is the name, name of the campaign, and yes, it's basically not one more person being denied care. We know that, unfortunately, cancer does take a lot of lives. Absolutely. But when you're not even given the, the option for the treatment, or your treatment is delayed to an extent where you know that your outcomes are going to be pretty pretty dark, because it's taken you six months to come up with that $56,000, then that's the part that's not fair. That's the part that's unjust. So what, what do you do when you have someone call you, and they have cancer, and they could get treatment that would save them, but they don't have $56,000 and it's going to take three lifetimes to get because you have to survive. Mm-hmm. You have to eat and uh, home and mm-hmm. everything else that goes along with just surviving mm-hmm. to make 56000 How? What do you what do you do? You just have to sit and watch people well, die. I mean, I don't it sounds awful. Um, no, I mean, no, we can't do that. Right. So because they're coming to us because there's always that we have that hope and we're going to work hard to try to help them get that money. Um, we try to come up with funds internally. We work with partners, uh, different partners that also try to support the family financially. And our community is resilient, if anything else. They have mm-hmm. made it through the worst of traumas just to get here and make this place home. They will um, sell food. They will sell household items. They will do extra shifts. Their whole communities will chip in. Their churches will chip in. And they will eventually, hopefully, get the funds. 
again, it's the delay part that's the unfortunate piece. Because at the same time, we don't want to discourage and say, you realize that it's been, you know, six to eight months since your diagnosis. So your actually outcomes are now going to be really bad. But you don't say that to them because they've worked so hard and they've gotten the money. So now we just kind of try to support them through the process and make sure that they're finally somehow able to get in. On the other side, what our job as El Centro is, is having those conversations and bringing up the the attention of what's happening to our community to those entities that can change those policies. Because those are policies that were man-made. These are not federal, you know, things that were that, that they were being told they have to do. These are not, you know, that, that kind of thing. It's not that kind of like a law. These were boards, which are made out of, of human beings, which mm-hmm. are made up of people in our community, that if they were aware that their policies were causing this, they could change that policy. This is an internal policy like anything else. If it's unfair, if it's unjust, it needs to change. And so that's what the campaign is about, is saying this policy is unfair and unjust. You have to change it and why it's important to change it and why it would benefit the whole community to have a healthier community. And, and you know, it, it certainly would. And what, what we found is we've I've gone through these discussions over the last, frankly, few years is the amount of impediments that are put up in various communities mm-hmm. and the amount of effort it takes for the communities to get over those impediments mm-hmm. could be put to much greater use in building just a, an awesome society. Right. As you're talking about this, and I'm thinking $56,000, where am I going to come up with that? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the awesome mental stress that comes with that, mm-hmm. but also comes with mental stress of being undocumented because mm-hmm. I've dealt with individuals that, you know, they we had uh, Rekha Shama Crawford who wrote a book from a children's pers- child's perspective of parents being taken away by ICE and you have the, just the stress of yeah. kind of being maybe found out. I, I assume that's a real stress. Yes. What about mental health treatment? Is that is that part of something that El Centro tries to do or is it just focusing right now we're just going to focus on the, the physical body and just making sure that stays alive we try to talk about those issues as well but we do, since we're not a clinic ourselves we don't have doctors we don't right. provide medical care ourselves we try to refer them to places where they could get that but then that, that i mean let's not even talk about mental health resources that are non-existent when it talks about different languages right, right. when you when you need them in spanish in the in the language you dream right that makes it even harder and a lot of these families are so focused on that on that goal of we just need to get this money so we can start the treatment so that you know they can get better that i think a lot of times they put that piece of it in the back burner but you're right it is and the other sad part is these are just the people that are getting to us how many individuals are getting that diagnosis and just saying well that number's impossible i'm never even going to get that and then just stop right there so i know that the, the the amount of people that we help cannot be everybody that's out there but we're trying to do our best in changing policies so that regardless if this person ever finds El Centro as a referral, that they're just able to go to our hospital systems, to our cancer care systems, not just KU, but Advent Help and all of, and everybody else and get the, the treatment that they need to get healthy. Well, and the, the other thing I, that made me think of is that to the extent that a significant portion of a community is not making it into, for example, this NIH-sponsored or NIH-associated hospital, that whatever experiments or new medicines or new treatments that are being developed won't adequately take into account perhaps a slight variation in some cell or something, I don't know what it is, thereby further detrimenting the very community that when they do get the $56,000 and they come up, that the treatment is not going to affect it, that be as effective as it maybe would be for me if, they, if the experiments were done on middle-aged white guys. Right. And we understand the importance of having... Um medical resource available in communities and representing the communities that they're supposed to kind of be affecting. So we understand the value of that portion. And so it's really complicated when you have an institution, which remember, okay, you two institutes, you got the medical institution, and then you have the educational, mm-hmm. the uh, the university component. Then you have the medical researchers, which are trying to come up with these new therapies that work for all communities of color, right? And so one of the big push is always trying to find, like, we need to recruit more from black communities, from brown communities, from Asian communities, from native communities, so that they can participate in these research studies so that those therapies are better. They are the best that they can be. But how do you go into a community and say, hey, I need you to help me recruit your people for a research study, for bio, uh, for your biobanking and things like that, because we need to come up with better therapies, better drugs, which are important. I believe in that. And you say, sure, great. Uh, I, I believe in that. I want to be able to to make sure our community knows that they have that as an option. However, if while you're doing your research and your testing, it turns out that one of the people that you recruited has cancer, can you guarantee that then you'll treat them? Oh no, no, we can't do that. That's a different policy. Oh, that wow. that's 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 a hospital side. We can't we can't guarantee that. 
So how do you do that? How do you go into a community and ask for their bio data, ask for them to participate in research, but then turn around? And it's not just cancer care. This is in every treatment. But they say, oh, but we can actually guarantee that they'll be served if we find anything. So what what is the... I'm just trying to imagine what the sales pitch is to get a community to participate that's already being marginalized and let, you know, let them know, hey, you're going to be helping. But by the way, if it turns out you you particularly have a condition and you're not documented or don't have insurance, we, or don't have insurance we're not going to treat you. I'm just how do they, how do they how do you sell that? I mean, it, how, I don't know how you would. It would. Exactly. It gets really complicated yeah. because then it's an ethical question. Sure. How can I ethically help you recruit individuals from yeah, my community? Yeah. And then you're telling me you're not actually going to treat them. So we have to turn around and say, no, we're not going to participate in that, even though I know it's a valuable resource. I know it can do good. But ethically, I can't do that. I know one of the other things we talked about, HB 2350 law. Tell me a little bit about that and and why that's relevant to the work that El Centro does. I mean, when you talk about justice, this is that is a perfect justice example because it is a law. You know, we want justice in the world. We don't want HB 2350 is an anti-smuggling law. That's amazing. Nobody wants, nobody believes in human smuggling. We don't want human smuggling. It's a bad thing. But the fact that that's not what the intention was, it was Mm. never intended to be anti-smuggling. Let's be very clear. In Kansas, we all know that that law and people that work, advocates, grassroots advocates, Latino, people in the Latino community, we know that that is an anti-immigrant law. Mm. The, it was touted and it was sold as, oh, it's anti-smuggling. We don't want people to suffer from from being humanly smuggled. But yet what it did and what it was intended to do was cause more fear, more isolation in the Latino community, especially when you're talking about mixed status households. A lot of our households in the Latino community, not all of them, but a lot of them, come from mixed status families. What a mixed status family is, is is a family where it's mom, dad, children, grandpa, grandpa, uncles, whatever. And you have all different statuses within that one family structure. You have U.S. citizens born here. You have uh, legal permanent residents that have gone their residency. You have um, undocumented folks. You can have refugee asylees. You can have all kinds of different folks that are all part of one household. The way that this law was written, which was so poorly and so vaguely, which is, I think one of the words is like one of the lines or one of the worst lines. There's a lot of them, but one of the worst lines is should have known like, I should have known before I transported you or gave you a ride. I should have known you were undocumented. How should I have known that? Because you're brown? Mm. Because you speak Spanish? Am I going to be asking people for their documentation status before they get into my car? Wow. Or, or I rent them an apartment? Because that's what they were intending to do. That's what they want to put so much fear that people start stereotyping individuals because, oh, they might be. So I'm not going to take any chances and I'm not going to give them a ride or I'm not going to rent them an apartment or I'm not going to sell them a house. Because they might be, I should have known, I guess. And so you have these groups of of families that have different status households. Let's say mom and dad are driving their kids to their baseball game, and they have and they're and as we know for children's sports, you got to go wherever they're gonna. The next game is you could cross state lines, you could cross uh, to different counties. Um, Let's say mom's driving, dad happens to be undocumented, and then there's children in the car. They get stopped. They find out he's undocumented. So she was human smuggling because she was transporting somebody that she knew or should have known was undocumented. Does she get charged with a felony? Because that's what it is. It's a felony. It's too vague. It didn't make any sense. So now you have all these households, all these families that are just scared that at every at any movement, somebody, either themselves or somebody that they care about, is going to be accused of this. And it just, it, as I'm hearing you talk about it, it just, it's like turning the knob on the anxiety. Like it just, it increases the fear. It increases the the pressure and what's what's also fascinating to me is it, and and certainly my experience anecdotal in the Latino community, but without question, every person that's come in my office to hire me from the Latino community, it, it's not one person. It's like the whole family comes in, and so it's everything that's done is a family affair, and it seems like this very concept would break up or not break up, but certainly would cause additional pressure that yes. would be manifest in some way that can't be helpful to keeping a family together. Correct. And that was, and we believe as advocates, we believe that that was the intention of the law. The intention of the law was to create that fear, to create that anxiety, um, and off the heels of what happened in Florida, which we all saw like just right before it passed, where it's like, then we don't, we're not wanted here. We're not welcome here. We need to move. We need to get out of here before 
because this is going to mean all kinds of horrible things for us. So it's another way of saying individuals aren't welcome, which is so hypocritical for a state like Kansas to say, which has so much agricultural and meat and industries that rely on immigrants that wouldn't be able to survive or sustain themselves without immigrants, but then at the same time instilling fear in those same people that you need to make your state work. Well, and one of the things certainly I've learned during my career is is that the processing plants, the agriculture, as you've indicated, it's a significant proportion, at least I've seen, of Latino. Exactly. And so it's those same individuals then we're putting pressure on to mm-hmm. make more uncomfortable. I, mm-hmm. I don't... It, I don't. It doesn't I, make sense. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. We are not a state that has, we do not get their, our money from tourism. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Kansas does not get their money from tourism. That's not where it's going to come from. So to make our industries work, we know we need the immigrant workforce. We just do. It's a fact of life. Anybody that doesn't understand that or believe that is living in fantasy world. Even a metropolitan area like Kansas City, the greater Kansas City area. There's a lot of fields in there that a lot of them are sustained by an immigrant workforce, but yet you feel the need to vilify those individuals that are making your economy work, that have revitalized your neighborhoods, your um, shopping little centers. You know, everybody wants to go down to Central Avenue because there's all these cool stores to go to, all the Mexican food, all the Mexican snacks. But yet it's okay to vote for individuals that are then going to turn around and create laws to make their lives more miserable. I have to wonder if, if we started with kind of affirming affirming someone's humanity, which I think you you alluded to at the beginning of our show, and you base decisions on that initial conclusion or that initial goal or intent, that we'd hopefully get a lot farther along than we are. But it seems like we're doing a little bit of the opposite of that, or maybe a lot of bit of the opposite. Right. If if people want to learn more about your organization, El Centro, where 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 can they go, number one? And then also what opportunities maybe are coming up or, or things that they can people can get involved in if, if they feel drawn to this issue? Um, they can. We do have a website, uh, www.elcentroinc.com. We also have a very active Facebook page. You can find us at El Centro, KCK, I think, on, on Facebook, um, as well just do a search and we'll come up. And there we will have a whole bunch of different events. We Last night we had a, vac- a community vaccine event uh, for flu shots that we did at our academy for children. We had over 90 individuals that we were able to vaccinate, regardless of insurance or documentation <laughs> status, right. uh, because we know that a healthy community is better. We don't want to spread the flu around. Absolutely. So this is our flu vaccine drive. And then we also have our Giving Tuesday campaign coming up. Um, we do it every year. We are always looking for donations that go directly back into the services that we provide. Through our website, we do have a donate now, and you're actually able to designate a drop down if you want your dollars to go specifically to the cancer care access. These are dollars that were given to individuals to help raise that money so they could start the cancer sure. treatment. You're able to designate that specifically for that campaign if it's something that really matters to you. And so, yeah, there's a lot of ways that you can give in that way. But I would say what's more important is to ask yourself to really look around at your community, who makes up your community, inform yourself on the things that they're struggling with and going through. And when you see something or you hear somebody say something that's incorrect or not wrong or that they're touting it as being something positive, but you know is hurting a community, it's up to all of us to say, that's not right. That's actually now how it works. Actually, I know that for a fact that it's hurting this population. It's up to all of us to be advocates for our friends and neighbors. Erica Andrade, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Thank you. I appreciate it. This is David Bell. You're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, 
its staff, or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD.